Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Nora Brostowitz, and I am a member here. Today's reading will be from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Nora. Amen. Let's pray together as we look to God's word. Father, we want to quiet our hearts now to gaze into what might be the most great and glorious truth of them all. You have given us your very own righteousness through the death and resurrection of your son as a free gift. What a good and gracious God you are. Help us to see not only that this is true, but more than that, even that it changes everything this morning. Would this truth be the thing that makes us righteous? And would our lives be changed as we come in the counter with it this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. What is the greatest gift you've ever received? And how did that gift impact your relationship with whoever it was that gave it to you? It can be kind of hard to articulate these things, right? But I think in one sense, at least, we kind of all know how these things work. Uh, in fact, I, I think this is why conventional wisdom would suggest that husbands do not get their wives something to cook or clean with. Uh, as, as a birthday gift, for example, we kind of just get it, right? That, that's, that's not a good gift. But why? Brothers, there's probably a few reasons. But one is that a gift like that is effectively an invitation to work. At best, it communicates, honey, my favorite thing about you <laughs> is your cooking and your cleaning but at worst, it may even communicate, here you go, now I expect you to use this for my benefit, right? So that you cook meals that, you know, I eat or clean our house, you know, 
instead of me. Uh, this is one mark of a bad gift, though, when the whole point of the gift is the benefit of the giver. And the result of a gift like this is often, understandably, a breakdown in relationship. It's not a, not a blessing to the relationship. A good gift is one that blesses the recipient in a way that relieves them of, of a burden rather than adding one or, or sort of invites them to rest and to enjoy life in some meaningful way. It doesn't come with a bunch of strings attached or implicit obligations, right? It's, it's free. It's for your benefit. And the result really is that the recipient is blessed and the gift giver receives honor. When I consider the best gift I've ever received, there is one in particular that comes to mind. Uh, it was a gift that we got for Christmas as kids in my family. It was for all three of us. And there is a famous family video of the morning we received it. It's kind of an impressive video, I have to be honest. I don't know how my parents pulled this off in the 90s. But the video starts with my mom, I think, recording inside the garage with the lights off. Then when my dad hits the button to open the garage door, the Christmas morning light shines in on a beautiful kitty cat snowmobile. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a little snowmobile designed for kids, okay? None of us were expecting this. None of us felt like we deserved it. My goodness, I didn't know that such a glorious machine even existed. <laughs> but there it was. And it was ours. We brought it to my grandma and my grandpa's house that day who lived out in the country. We spent the whole morning riding that thing and laughing and making these videos. Now that is a gift that does not invite you to work. It invites you to enjoy it, right? It doesn't demand something hard from you. It invites you into something that is sweet and good and pleasant for you. It doesn't communicate, here you go, son. Now use this for my benefit. No, it communicates, here, we have gone to great lengths to give you this so that you can have it for your benefit. And for these reasons, a good gift leaves us with a deep sense of gratitude just wanting to honor the gift giver. So imagine if when my parents opened that garage, the Christmas morning light shined in on a snow blower <laughs> instead of a snowmobile. How would you guys feel about my parents then? <laughs> this will be the fourth truth we focus on in our series through Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 31, and that is namely grace. The idea that God makes us righteous, as Paul says here, by his grace as a gift. Now, I really labored over this decision as to which truth I should preach first, grace or faith. Uh, in, in some ways, it probably makes sense that grace would come first, and it often does in most discussions of theology, including the mantra that marks the Reformation, that we're, we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and certainly a, an understanding of grace is vital to faith. Technically, grace is the thing that makes us righteous. And faith is the way we take hold of that grace. In other words, by, by preaching grace second here, I certainly don't mean to suggest that it only becomes relevant 
after we've come to saving faith in Jesus. It's, it's possible I just blew this and, and really messed up the order. I'm, I'm always very open to that kind of a thing. But in this case, at least here in Romans, first, faith seems to be a bit more of a primary focus than grace in the letter at large. And we've even seen this in, in, the, in the emphasis of chapter one, in the introduction, right? Paul talks about the obedience of faith among all nations. He talks about God's righteousness being revealed from faith for faith and that the righteous shall live by faith. So we've seen this, but also here in, in these 10 verses, Paul begins by describing this newfound righteousness we have as, quote, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He only adds this one little phrase about grace as he keeps elaborating on how it is that we're justified. Namely, in verse 24, he says, it is by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So this is our focus today. What does it mean to be made righteous by his grace as a gift? And, and just as importantly, why is this idea of grace in particular, why is it so crucial to this whole equation? Because it is. Last week, I trust, we made it very clear that sinners are justified by faith alone. That, that our good works and, and even this lifelong process of sanctification, being made more like Jesus, these do not have any bearing on whether or not God makes us righteous. Instead, he makes us righteous through faith when we stop relying, in fact, on ourselves and we stop trying to justify ourselves and, and the disposition of our soul is miraculously changed and we begin to rely instead on Christ and Christ alone. As if we are certain his death on the cross was sufficient to make us righteous and it has made us righteous. But today... As we consider this concept of grace, my hope is that we will begin to see the logic of why it is so important even that we're justified by faith alone and contribute nothing. And to make sense of this logic of grace, we have to reflect on the giving and receiving of a gift. This is why Paul uses this phrase, by his grace, as a gift. He's using these words as a gift to describe and help us understand the first few words, by his grace. Uh, that word grace, the, the Greek word is used 154 times throughout the New Testament. 100 of those uses are from Paul and every single one of Paul's letters contains the word. There are some subtle variations to the way the word can be used but almost always it speaks to this idea of a heavenly gift. Grace is a gift given to us by God. Here's the key. Not because he is in any way obligated to give it to us, but because he is kind enough to give it to us, even though he is not obligated to. Already you might be able to see why we must be justified by faith alone. Because if God makes us righteous as a gift in this way, well, the appropriate response and the only appropriate response is to receive the gift, is to receive it by faith because the whole point is that he's not obligated to give it. 
If we contribute to our being made righteous, then we are not made righteous by grace as a gift. That is basically the logic of God's grace, but I want you to see it this morning from Scripture. Because you might be thinking, really? I mean, it seems like you're really pulling a lot out of just these few little words, by his grace as a gift. Is all of that really wrapped up in what Paul is saying here? Well, if it were not, then we might expect as we keep reading for this letter to sort of trail off, right? In in some other direction. And the ideas that I'm mentioning would not be revisited or elaborated on. And some other concept would maybe emerge and make it a little clearer what Paul's really getting at. But in this case, what happens is the exact opposite of that. Chapter four, if you'll look with me now, is all about this relationship between God's grace and our faith. Paul expounds on this very thing. He starts by referring to Abraham and his example of relying on God's promise as opposed to relying on his works. Look with me at chapter four, verse two. It says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Remember, he just told us in in chapter three, verse 27, our boasting is excluded, right? By the law of faith. He has something to boast about, but he says, not before God, for what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul, I want to point out, he is clearly contrasting the idea of being justified by works and the idea of being justified by faith. It's very clear. Next, he even goes so far as to contrast the idea of a grace gift with the idea of a wage. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, the whole point of a gift is that the recipient's done nothing that would obligate the giver to give it. If if we were in any way entitled to receive a gift because of something we'd done, then it is by definition not a gift, right? It's, It's a wage. I want you to imagine going to your company's annual Christmas party. And on the way in, they hand you and everyone else that comes an envelope. It's your gift for the year. And then at the end of the party is the climax to the whole thing. Everybody gets ready and they open up their envelopes. And and inside of this envelope, when you open it, you find your paycheck uh, for that pay cycle. It would almost certainly come across as a joke. I mean, even to an atheist, I mean, right? You you, you, You don't have to be a theologian to understand this. This is not a gift. This is not a gift. I earned this. I earned this by working. In fact, you actually, you have to give me this. You have to give it to me. If you did not give it to me, you would be unjust and unrighteous. But notice Paul's logic here. Because we are justified by grace through faith, he's just told us in verse 27, our boasting is excluded And if Abraham were justified by works, for instance, then he would have something to boast about. This is central to the logic of grace. The one who does the work receives the credit. And with that credit, then, also the reason, even the right to boast 
in his righteous works. Listen to how Paul describes how this should work. Next, he says, and to the one, listen, who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. For Paul, working to be justified and believing in this justifier is mutually exclusive. We cannot kind of do both. Notice it's even specifically the ungodly whom God justifies through their belief in this righteous God-man, Jesus Christ. And therefore, if we try to work our way to righteousness as if, I don't know, maybe we're godly now, we are by definition not believing in him who justifies the ungodly. We're not doing, as we said last week, relying and depending on Christ in Christ alone. Paul circles back in a couple chapters in chapter six to this idea of a wage when he writes this very famously. He says, for the wages of sin is death. That, that his point is that that's the wage we deserve, by the way, for our unrighteous work. If, if God gave us what we were owed, it would not be righteousness. It would be death. But, Paul continues, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the equation of grace. If we could do good so that God were obligated to give us righteousness as a wage, then we would receive the credit. And if he even threatened to condemn us, then he would be unjust. But if the wage we really deserve is death, and he would have been perfectly just even to give us that wage, to give us death, but instead became a man himself and died in our place so that we can have his righteousness as a truly free gift. My goodness, just consider who would get to boast in that? Who gets credit if God makes us righteous by his grace as a free gift without any obligation to do so. Church, this is what is ultimately at stake in this doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is not just about getting all of our theological ducks in a nice, neat little row. It's not about cudgeling everyone over the head until they join our Protestant team. We don't care about a Protestant team. It's not about proving how astute we are or how sound our doctrine is. No, this doctrine is vital because it forces us to give credit where credit is due. The fact that we are justified by this free gift and do nothing to work to receive it, it makes it crystal clear, church, that God must get all the credit for making us righteous. He must get it all. The Puritan, uh, Jonathan Edwards, famously calls this the end for which God created the world so that he would be glorified, so that he would be honored by us forever and ever for this lavish display of his righteousness. So do you see the logic of God's grace 
in our justification. God is showing us here in the pages of Scripture that all of these truths are connected. All of these truths are intertwined. If we don't really deserve his wrath, then we don't really need a propitiation. If we think we can help sort of work our way to righteousness, then we won't rely on the propitiation. And if we don't rely on Christ alone as a, as a free gift of grace that we do nothing to contribute to in any way, then he will not receive all of the credit. He will have to share it, at least in part, with us. From the bottom of my heart, it is not just that, you know, some people think grace is this important, and then some people think grace is that important, and I don't know, you know, it's just a complicated theological debate, and we'll have to see how it all shakes out. No. No. This free gift of grace is the whole point. It is God's grace that makes us righteous, period. And if our justification is not a free gift received by faith, this whole equation breaks down, the whole thing. Our friend from last week, Herman Bobbing, puts it this way. He says, either we must do something to be saved and our or our salvation is purely a gift of grace. If our work, our virtue, our sanctification is primary, then we remain in doubt and uncertain to our last breath. Christ's unique all-encompassing and all-sufficient work is set aside, and here's the key, God is robbed of his honor. This is what's at stake in the doctrine and discussion of grace and justification. Who gets the honor for making us righteous? In light of all this, I wanna share just three simple takeaways for us this morning when it comes to this free gift of grace. And the first takeaway is this, is that this God sees all of our unrighteousness. He sees all of it. Now here, I, I'm really not even going to focus on our undeservedness. The fact that we don't deserve to be made righteous. I, I trust that's been clear. The first application point of the first sermon of the series on sin was that we deserve God's just condemnation. In the second sermon on propitiation, we talked about Jesus being crucified to absorb the wrath and condemnation that we deserve in order to show us how much more righteous God is than we are. And last week on faith, we talked about letting go of any self-reliance and depending entirely on the finished work of Christ because there's no other way to be justified. So I trust that our undeservedness has been made sufficiently clear already. And instead, I, I want to try and shepherd us through these things with God's perspective on all of this in mind. What is it that he sees? Because you really, you cannot receive the free gift of his righteousness without coming to grips with the fact that he sees all of your unrighteousness. And I think that any person in their right mind would probably either be skeptical of that idea or rightly terrified by it. This God sees all of my unrighteousness and my sin? I, how can that be a good thing? But to be honest, this, this may actually be one of my favorite aspects of the Christian life and faith. And really, it's, it's not because of some weird fascination I have with God's wrath or judgment. It's because 
to me, this is just what makes the gospel seem real. And if I'm honest, also true to my own experience of life. We, we have this tendency as human beings to really like to spin or kind of repackage our unrighteousness. As if, no, no, uh, if you think that is true of me, well, here, let me just help you understand you've misunderstood, right? And we had this tendency. We've had this tendency ever since Adam tried to cover his loins with that little fig leaf as if, hey, nothing to see here, right? This is a very old thing that we've done. But the more life you live, especially as a Christian, the more aware you become, at least ideally, of this tendency, both in yourself and in others, and the more empty and the more depressing it all starts to feel. Uh, if you've ever even just listened to someone tell a lie that you know is a lie, then you know how disheartening that can be. We, we even have a phrase for this sort of thing. We call it living a lie. When, when we are so committed to some kind of truth that ultimately is not really true, that we are, we're just willing to sacrifice everything, our integrity, our dignity, anything, just to insist on the lie. If you've ever even tried to live a lie or even just tell a lie of, of any consequence, you probably know how spiritually corrosive it can be. Absolutely. It just destroys us in our inner life. So this is one of my favorite aspects of Christianity because the gospel really does, it just cuts through all of that. We can say and do whatever it is we want, but in the end, God sees God knows, and God will operate according to what he knows is true about us. He looks at our little fig leaves and he says, I made you. I know what's behind that, right? This is what makes the gospel, to me, just seem real rather than some other self-improvement lie. And Paul talked about this whole concept back in chapters one and two. He said we were without excuse. And he even mentioned a day when, quote, according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So friend, you may be able to hide your unrighteousness from all of us. You may be able to keep it a secret, exactly how sin works in your life. We may not ever see it. You, you may be able to live the lie that you're not in need of this righteous substitute. Over time, you may even convince yourself this stuff is just not relevant for you. But it is foolish for us to think that we can hide our unrighteousness from this God or pass it off as something other than unrighteousness. We can't. We can't. He sees it all. He, he sees it even clearer than we do. Again, his wrath is revealed from heaven against all our unrighteousness so that, Paul says, every mouth may be stopped even and the whole world held accountable to him. He knows it all. He sees it all. And chances are that will either lead you to denial, nah, that can't be true, or to despair. What hope do I have? And really, some variation of those two would probably be our only options if it weren't for grace. Because, friends, this is the glorious one-two punch of God's free gift. 
He can see all of our unrighteousness. It's true. He sees even the most secretive inner sins of our lives, the sins we just think even. He sees it. And next, he still offers us his righteousness as a gift. He still does. Now, listen, I am sure you have many people in your life who really love you in all kinds of edifying and encouraging ways. I I hope you do. I pray you do. But I'm sorry, there is no being alive who loves you in this way. None. I'm sure you have people you're indebted to in your life who have done many great things for you for your benefit. That's great. And I pray you do. I'm sorry. No one has ever done anything like this to you. Not even close. We all know what it's like to have certain crippling insecurities in life, right? There are certain things about each of us that make us wonder, well, if they knew that part of who I am or how I operate, I I wonder how they would feel about me then. Uh, You may even have something specific in mind as I'm saying this, maybe a hidden sin that no one else knows of, yet it, it dominates your inner life and every private moment you have. Or an unethical practice at work, which if ever found out would result in you being fired and and maybe even your life spinning into a tailspin. Or even just a persistent, nagging character flaw that you get the sense some people may pick up on, but they certainly don't understand the full picture. Or if they do, maybe they're just not saying anything to you about it. And, And so you wonder in the recesses of your heart, how is that unrighteousness in me actually impacting my life and and my relationships? But friend, because of this free gift of Christ's death on the cross, we do not need to worry in these ways about our relationship with God. We don't have to. Because he sees it all. He knows it all. He is well aware you do not have what it takes to maintain or to contribute to this relationship with him. And he still offers you the free gift of his son so that he can rescue and secure your eternal life and intimacy with him forever and ever and ever so that he will get all the praise for having done it forever and ever and ever. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Why should we gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid our ransom. Church, There is no greater security than to be sure you can do nothing to ruin your relationship with this God because you have done nothing to secure it in the first place. He has done it all. And he didn't do it because of all the ways it would benefit him. No, in fact, it it cost him the life of his son. He didn't do it because he had a pretty good sense. You know, you're pretty sharp. This will probably go pretty well. No, he did it in spite of knowing that you don't have what it takes. He did it knowing full well that at times it would not go well. 
because of us, that we will keep failing and we will keep falling short of his glory. He did it because he is righteous. And by this free gift of his grace, he can make you righteous by faith alone. I pray you would all experience the life-altering relief that comes from receiving this free gift sincerely by faith. There is no shoe that might drop someday and just ruin all of this for you. No, that shoe already dropped on Jesus. It killed him and he came back to the dead to secure these things for us. There is no righteousness quota you have to meet between now and the life to come in order to guarantee and secure your right to enjoy or to benefit from this gift, friends. He has already met the righteousness quota for you and he offers you this gift of his very own righteousness even though you have no right to it whatsoever. He sees all of your unrighteousness. He still offers you his as a free gift through faith in his son. And finally, in the end, there are really just two ways to respond to this. Two ways to respond to, to the sermon, to, to the whole series, really. First, we can receive his free gift of grace by faith alone and give him all the credit, or we can deny it and keep trying to justify ourselves, or maybe even give up on the whole idea of being made righteous at all. Either way, whatever the case, we can either receive it by faith alone or, and give him all the credit or not. There is no middle option of sort of receiving the gift and having some faith and then contributing to our justification. No, these are mutually exclusive. We either receive it by faith or we deny it altogether. It's so helpful to read Paul on justification. It's also helpful to hear these things from Luke through the teaching of Christ himself, actually. In Luke 18... Jesus teaches his disciples this doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, with a parable. And this parable is, is about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And these two characters in the parable are really presented to us as the embodiment of these two options I've just shared with us. The two ways that we can respond to the free gift of God's grace. In chapter 18 of Luke, verse 9, Luke gives us some context first. He says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice, before we even read the parable, we can tell Jesus' position on this. He is concerned about those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. That said, here's the parable. He tells his disciples, two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, right out of the gate, anyone at first glance would assume it is the Pharisee who is righteous and it is the tax collector who is not. Pharisees in the day were, were basically uh, ancient equivalents to a pastor, really. They're teachers of the Bible. And the whole reason they're qualified to be a Pharisee is because they hold to a very strict interpretation of the Old Testament law. Tax collectors, on the other hand, the worst of all traders. 
They worked for King Caesar, a pagan king, taking money from God's covenant people so that they could keep living in the promised land that God had given to them long, long ago. But the Pharisee, Jesus says, standing by himself, prayed thus. He prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Notice, this friend is, is very confident, but his confidence is in his works. His confidence is in the fact that he does not commit certain sins and he does practice certain virtues. But the tax collector, on the other hand, Jesus says, standing far off, presumably because he's aware of his unworthiness, would not even lift up his eyes, he says, to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice, if this man has any confidence whatsoever, it could only be described as confidence in God. He, he does not gloat in his lack of sin. He does not flaunt his practice of any virtue. He does not even walk into the temple or look up. Instead, he acknowledges his sin, knowing that God can see it, and he asks God for his mercy. Not feeling entitled to the mercy, knowing that he doesn't deserve the mercy, but simply asking God for it as a gift. And Christ says this, listen, he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. He went down to his house made righteous rather than the other. And here's why. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is the logic of justification by grace alone. We must humble ourselves to receive the free gift as a free gift or forfeit the gift. And I want to ask you, who do you imagine would receive the credit for justifying this tax collector? It's God, of course, it's God, but why? It's because the tax collector may not have, uh, may not be free from sin. In fact, he's not. He even acknowledges he's a sinner. He, he may not even have a long list of good deeds to contribute to any kind of justification. In fact, he doesn't have a long list of good deeds. The difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee is that unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector sees his need for God's free gift of mercy and grace. He knows that he could only ever be made righteous as a gift. And therefore, he has the humility to receive God's grace as a gift and to give him all the credit. Meanwhile, the Pharisee seems to think that God should be thanked for how righteous he already is. Church, we are all faced with these two same responses to the free gift of God's grace in Christ. 
we can either receive him by faith, give him all the credit for making us righteous, or we can deny him by continuing to trust in ourselves that we are righteous. But this free gift of grace, it is the only thing that can dismantle our pride and replace it with gratitude. If we humble ourselves, acknowledge our need for this grace and receive it by faith, he gets all the credit, he gets all the glory, he gets all the honor, and listen, we get him. We get him. Weigh your response to this very, very carefully. Weigh it very carefully because you will never find a greater gift than this.